0: How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jensey. Tim, how's it going, sir?
1: I am very excited. It's a beautiful day outside, and we're going to conduct a hell of an interview.
0: Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So this week's episode is an exclusive interview with TSN's own Jamie McLennan. This has been an interview that we've wanted to do for a very long time. And we're going to try and keep this opening short because, you know what, I feel that this episode has been worth the wait. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it right now that I don't want to tune our own horn. This could be one of the better episodes we've done. But that's not for me to decide. That's for the listeners to decide. And we're going to go right now and we're going to segue into the interview. Let's roll it. So we're very excited to be able to get together today because we have a very special guest on the line. Our guest today is a 11-year NHL veteran who, post career, has translated into a second career with TSN as a hockey analyst covering the Ottawa Senators, as well as a co-hosting Overdrive for TSN 1050 with fellow former NHLer Jeff O'Neill. He also became a published author with his autobiography, "Best Seat in the House," which he co-wrote with then Sportsnet's Ian Mendez. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us from Toronto, Ontario, the home of the 2019 NBA champion Toronto Raptors, the man affectionately known as Noodles, Jamie McLennan. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. And we're going to start off the interview by asking, how's your day been going?
1: It's been good. Thanks for having me. Uh, You know, it's relaxing today. I I called a game yesterday, so I'm just trying to wind down a little bit. I've got a busy week coming up, but looking forward
0: to chatting some hockey and some, uh, some life with you guys. That's awesome to hear, man. Yeah, we do gotta start off the interview by saying that we do have a interview wish list, and I'm happy to know that you are our most distinguished guest we wanted to have on, and we get to finally cross you off today. Oh,
1: awesome! Well, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, hey, listen, it's uh, it's an honor to be here. So let's uh, let's have, have have some fun, relax, and have some fun.
0: Absolutely. So before we get into the questions. Uh, given that you did call the Sens game last night, that's what we're going to start off with. So at the time of this recording, the NHL preseason is in full swing, and the Senators are currently 2-1 after being shut out by the Habs last night. Given from what you've seen so far this preseason, what kind of expectations are you putting on this scene's Sens team as they start this new season?
1: I don't want the expectations too high, and, and the reason I would say that is I think the Sens are going to surprise some teams. Uh, given where they were last year, the bottom of the standings, you know, gave up way too many shots, way too many goals against. But you have a new look, and, and I continue to say this, that sometimes a new coach will give that team a, a bit of a jolt. Now, we're going to see that whether it's in Florida, in Philadelphia, uh, in Anaheim with Dallas Aikens, uh, in Buffalo with Ralph There, You know, one of these teams is going to get that new coach jolt in the first year, uh, given the fact that I think Pierre Dorian is is try to surround some of these young kids with just solid NHLers. So you guys like Ron Hainsey and Zaytsev and Tyler Ennis, uh, um, Anisimov. Those are guys that can play and have played in the league. And then you've got some young guys that you hope to take another step. And, you know, that's what I look at uh, with the Senators. So I don't believe there'll be a playoff team. I don't think anybody is, is calling them a playoff team. But can they get points off of teams that take them lightly? Or or maybe these young kids step up and and be impact players a lot sooner than than later. So I I think there are some positive expectations, but you have to temper them by saying, okay, you got to be realistic. There are going to be some lean nights in Ottawa where uh, the growing pains translate to to maybe a loss.
0: Mm -hmm, Because I know for Tim and myself being fans of the Ottawa Senators, one thing that I... The mindset I have coming into the season is that I feel that this is going to be our tank here, given that the 2020 NHL entry draft is already being touted as one of the deepest drafts of all time, and given that we realistically have one of the best odds to land the number one pick, is that something that coming into the season you had the mindset as well, given that how young we are?
1: Uh, yes and no. I think sometimes you uh, you look at what the Toronto Maple Leafs were able to pull off for Austin Matthews. They had what we've we termed the dignified tank. It was, you know, they lost 3-2 every night. They didn't cheat the the crowd for effort. You saw some some growth for some of the players, but, you know, they ended up in last place where they wanted to be. I don't get the sense from the organization that that's what they're shooting for. If it happens through osmosis, I, I think then that's something that they will be fine with. But ultimately, I think you're looking at guys like Kachuk and as I mentioned, you know Barano, Batherson, guys to take a step. You know, is Shabbat gonna gonna allow that team on the back end to, you know, kind of end up in last place? There are some players that are pretty solid there. So uh, if it happens, I think it's it's more that they start to move veteran players at the deadline for more and more pieces, and and that's where uh, I think general manager Pierre Dorian will be creative uh, if if he has to. But ultimately. Uh, they hit rock bottom last year, and I think they want to take that next step and see if uh, a guy like Brady Kachuk could get to 30 goals uh, and, and, and see if guys can really establish themselves. So I, I don't know if that's the actual plan uh, behind the scenes in the room, but I would argue that there's like three different plans to see how things end up sorting out as the season goes along.
0: So as we said off the top, Jamie, uh, you spent 11 seasons in the NHL, after being drafted by the New York Islanders in 1991, 40th overall. Talk to us a little bit about what was it like being drafted by the New York Islanders, and overall, how did you enjoy your time on Long Island?
1: It was cool being drafted by the Islanders. It was really weird heading into the draft. I was the second-ranked goalie in the draft behind, I'm trying to, what was his name? Now uh, Mike uh, Mike Torchia. I think he played in Kitchener. He was like 5'10", 5'11", 240. He was a great grinder. But he was he was good and I think he won a Memorial Cup or lost in the finals or something really good guy so he was ranked one I was ranked two and I think Chris Osgood was ranked maybe fourth something like that it, you know it was we were all uh, kind of in the same mix but you know heading into it I I'd done in- interviews with maybe 15 teams like they it was kind of all over the map and I kind of had an idea Chicago was really interested Detroit I had four separate interviews with them and Ken Holland and his crew and different layers of management involved. Uh, I had met with the Islanders several times and I just didn't know. I, I had an idea that I thought my agent thought that I could be, you know, a second rounder that year, obviously with the less lesser teams, I went 48th overall, which was the fourth pick in the third round that year. That would be a second round nowadays, but you know, there, it was, it was unique because, um, No goalie. Uh, Andrew Werner, I think, ended up being the first goaltender taken by the Oilers of all people. And, you know, I grew up in Edmonton. I wasn't an Oiler fan, but, uh, you know, Werner, I don't think, ever played a game. And then I was taken, uh, and then there was a guy named Milan Halinka and Chris Osgood, and Torchia didn't go into the fourth round of Dallas. But uh, it ended up being a unique draft year. It was nerve-wracking um but something I'll never forget and obviously going to the Islanders uh, that was such a storied franchise at the time right uh, Bill Torrey was the general manager Al Arbor legendary coach um so it was a it was a real uh, neat thing to go there and try and establish myself and turn pro and I I had you know I had a great time there it didn't end well when Mike Milbury had taken over and You know, the organization kind of went south, but I'll never forget my time on the island, and, you know, it was kind of like your first time for anything. uh, Something you'll always remember and and hold uh, dear to yourself.
0: So I know you've probably been asked this several times, but your first training camp of the Islanders, you walk in and Ron Hextall is the starting goaltender. Uh, What kind of a personality was he in the room versus what he was on the ice?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I can even go a step further back. Uh, When I first got there... Hexie wasn't there yet. It was just uh, it was guys like Mark Fitzpatrick, Glenn Healy was still around, Steve Weeks. But what happened is once I made it to the National Hockey League, Hexie was there. But I'll even go a step further. Billy Smith was my goalie coach. So you've got a, a legendary goalie in Billy Smith who's won cups and and is quite an aggressive goaltender. And, and even the way he coached, uh, he wanted the goaltenders to be aggressive and he said a lot of uh, goaltending back then was between the years, so you had to be mentally sharp. So that was my goalie coach, and then Hexie ends up being my first goaltender partner. So I've kind of had intense all around me, which was great. I, I have to be honest, uh, Ron and I are still friends to this day. I attribute some of my success to Ron because I learned so much from him about work ethic. He was the hardest-working goaltender I'd ever seen. And here's a guy who revolutionized the game. I still argue I think he's the best puck-handling goaltender who ever played the game. And that's with respect to guys like uh, Tom Barasso, Martin Brodeur. It, it was Hexie who was another level. He was like a player. So uh, learning from Hexi and, and learning his preparation before the game and, and some of the routines he went through, it, it helped me throughout my career and even into life. I think Ron's a guy who is very prepared, very focused, and that's kind of how I like to be when I transition into uh, into broadcasting. I certainly like to have fun, but there's a lot of hard work that, that goes into it. And, you know, Hexie helped instill that work ethic in me.
0: So after three seasons playing for the Islanders, you signed with the St. Louis Blues in 1996, where you would spend three full seasons from 97, 98 to 99, 2000. Of all the questions I could ask about your tenure with St. Louis, I actually want to ask about what was it like being a St. Louis pro athlete, especially in those first three seasons you were there, Given that during that time, all three of the St. Louis sports teams dominated the sports pages and highlight shows with things like Mark McGuire becoming the home run king, the Rams transforming from 4-12 and 12 to the greatest show on turf, and of course the St. Louis Blues being the top team in 2000. Now with all that being said, what was it like, not just being a pro athlete, but to be in St. Louis at that time?
1: how much can i say on this podcast i mean i don't want to get in trouble but uh, i mean i'll be honest i was single and enjoyed my life uh my best friend was chris pronger who was winning the heart in the Norse. and we were very close we lived right b- beside mark mcguire so uh let's i'll paint a picture for you we you know the hockey and the baseball was great but you know, here's me, the backup goaltender, going out to, to the bar on a Wednesday or Thursday night with six foot six McGuire, who's hitting seventy, and six foot six uh, Pronger, who's winning the Norris and Hart. So we certainly, and those guys were making some money too. So uh, it, it was a lot of fun off the ice, off the field. Like you mentioned, the city was a buzz with the sports teams. I always say that I think St. Louis is one of the best kept secrets in America as far as sports cities uh, they embraced their team the athletes and embraced the city you know the night before Mac hit 69 and 70 we went out he came to our game and then we went out and, and pretty much all of us got overserved and then we went to the uh, the game the next day it was a one o'clock game and Big Mac hit 69 and 70 I don't even know how he could uh, function but he did and then it got rained out I think in the fifth or sixth inning and their season was done but you know, Mac was a, he's a great guy. I know Prong still stays in touch with him. I, I don't. I kind of lost touch with him. But he, he was a fantastic person, always good to me. And I know people talk about, you know, whatever, the steroid stuff and all that. But, you know, Big Mac was uh, an unreal hitter, and he was great for the city and and, and good for the game, if you believe in that. And, and, and to me, Mac was just a solid citizen. So I uh, had a lot of fun in St. Louis in those three years, I'll tell you that.
0: Oh, I would imagine. Now, one of the big reasons, again, I wanted to ask this question is because over the last several years with things like Spit and Chicklets and other kind of podcasts, you're seeing more and more players or ex-NHLers that have come out and said either St. Louis was their favorite city to play in or that's a city they loved going to. And it seems like a lot of these athletes end up retiring in St. Louis. So what is it about the city of St. Louis and their sports fans that just endears them to the players?
1: Well, you know, the cost of living is reasonable. You know, when you think of St. Louis, sometimes people get a bit lost in the, uh, you know, maybe the crime that is in East St. Louis, which is across the river, but there's some fantastic areas there. Uh, Aesthetically, it's quite beautiful with the river and the the arch and all of that. And like I said, it's a a city that embraces not only their athletes, but there's a mentality around there that, you know, people are quite uh, friendly, you know, Midwestern city and, uh, there's lots to do. It's easy to get to if you, you want to fly in from Chicago, and Chicago's only up the road four and a half five hours. So there's there's a lot of things to do. I think the climate is 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 quite reasonable. So uh, and then you you look at their sports teams. Uh, the city the they just love their teams. And if you play for the Blues or at the time it was the Rams and and then the Cardinals, like those guys put that much effort to get involved in the community and i look at for example i'm a st louis blues alumni i mean that's a massive alumni association they're involved in charity kelly chase is a guy who's kind of the the face of it and they're always involved in helping out and 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 wanting to include the community so it's one of those cities that that you know players just gravitate to and then you hear that everyone wants to retire there and 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 grow a family
0: because mm-hmm, I know even with their recent cup run here uh, this past spring, that's the one thing I noticed. It seems like a lot of their ex players start coming out, like, well, most notably Brett Hall, every yeah. game. And yeah, that's always the feeling I've always gotten that St. Louis seems to be a well kept secret in hockey because I imagine like a casual fan when asking what, what kind of hockey cities we think of, it would be Chicago, Pittsburgh, yeah. obviously Montreal and Toronto. But yeah, St. Louis doesn't seem to get as much recognition than those cities do
1: they don't. I mean, they hadn't, they never won before. Uh, had expectations for the team, I think, made the playoffs 26 years in a row, but, you know, we, we won the President's Trophy, I think it was 99-2000, and we were, We I think people thought we were destined to win the Cup, and we ended up losing in the first round of San Jose, and, you know, they're, they're a team that's been, I think, just had bad timing and bad situations, but it all came together for them last year. You know, the the organization was really good to me um, and even invited me for some of the festivities, but I didn't want to, you know, I'm, I'm 20 years removed, so I didn't want to seem like one of those guys who all of a sudden jumped on the, the bandwagon. I, I supported a lot of people that were still in the organization, obviously played with Craig Baruby and a lot of the guys, uh, Mike Van Ryan, that uh, affiliated with the organization and then the people behind the scenes. So I was happy for them. But I kind of kept my distance and just supported them. I didn't want to be a, another body uh, that, that was uh, I could deem as a floater. I didn't want to be one of those floaters. Yeah, and it's totally understandable. And uh, it's interesting because you've played in a lot of different park club places. Uh, St. Louis, Calgary, New York, uh, even the UK and Japan. What was it like kind of finishing off a career in Japan, in rural Hokkaido, playing in an Asian hockey league that spanned countries? It was really cool, and I'll, I'll give you the quick backstory of how that happened. I ended in the NHL with Calgary on a little suspension that you know looked worse than it really was. All of that fun stuff, but um, I my agent called me and said, "Listen, there's a team in the KHL named Magnitogorsk. Uh, he said google the city. Um, they're willing to you know sign you to a one year deal.' The money was very lucrative. You know, it, it was." They pay the taxes, so it became tax-free. So I, I signed the deal. I went to Magneta Gorse for about six, seven weeks. It just wasn't a fit. I don't think they loved me, and I certainly didn't love what was going on there. It just wasn't, uh, you know, I'm not here to, to kick stones at the organization. It just wasn't, it wasn't right for me. I, I'm, I was grateful that I got a chance to go, but I was also grateful to get on the plane to leave. <laughs> and when I got, got home in November, uh, I'd always been in contact with Daryl Sutter. And Daryl has said, uh, you know, the minute you retire, I've got a spot in the Flames organization for you, so you let me know. And I was going to retire after Russia. i kind of had enough. And uh, one of my best friends growing up is a guy named Joel Dick. And his brother coaches the Vancouver Giants, uh, Michael, and they billeted me in Lethbridge uh, 100 years ago in junior. So they have quarter Japanese descent. So Joel had gone over uh, and and been a non-import, got his Japanese pass. And he'd been there for about 16 years. So he called me and said, you know, I'm close to retirement. He's like, why don't we retire together? Why don't you, you know, come over. The team will take care of you, you know, make some money. But it'll be kind of a paid vacation and you still get to play hockey. So uh, I went and I brought my buddy Tyson Nash with me and it ended up being an unreal situation. Um, you know, I, I don't think anybody plans to, to just out of, out of nowhere visit Japan. So I went and lived there for four or five months, and there was four teams in Japan, two in Korea, and one in China. So I got an opportunity to see all these cities uh, uh, get paid to do it and, and play a little bit of hockey. And the hockey was about the East Coast League level. The, the top two lines were probably East Coast League level, and then there was a little bit of a drop off, but uh, uh, I loved my time there. The the culture, the people. I still have friends there. So I ended up retiring there, and and we ended up going to the finals that year and losing to a team called Sebu. But uh, it, it was great. And I retired uh, the day I retired. I joined uh, the Flames organization and with, with them for three years before I joined the media. So I've never really stopped playing and working, but. Ultimately, uh, you know, it was a, an experience that I wouldn't trade for anything. I loved, uh, I loved the Asia uh, Ice Hockey League. One thing that Japanese baseball is known for is having very passionate fans that they'll sing, they'll dance, they'll bring full on cheering squads into the stands. Is does that carry over into hockey, and
0: what's it like uh, it,
1: playing in that arena? It did, and it was very neat because uh, sign of respect, you. Uh, before the game you you bow to the crowd uh you know there's there's some they have some traditions there that i had to learn very quickly and respected and loved i thought it was amazing Uh, the crowd uh i didn't understand the language very well so you know they had chants and would sing during the game and you know i I think once the game got going hockey was hockey but everything that came with it uh, i embraced the culture i loved it uh um, you know I tell my wife all the time I'm like you know I'd love to, to take you to Japan I uh, Tokyo is a fantastic city and even living on the northern island of Hokkaido in Koshiro it was it was really neat I I kind of uh, compare that city to uh, Saskatoon about three four hundred thousand people hardworking, um, you know blue-collar city and you know the, the the organization upon paper took very good care of us so Uh, you know, I, I, you hear stories. I, the only one I can relate to if you want to watch something is, is, I don't know if you remember a movie years ago, Mr. Baseball with Tom Selleck, where he went over and he was playing, he was a professional baseball player and he, and he played for basically the company team. Well, that's what I did myself and Tyson Nash. We were paid by Nippon paper and we just (laughs) happened to play for their hockey team. And it was, uh, it was a fantastic experience. Yeah, I don't doubt it. It's beautiful country. love going, and it's awesome to hear that hockey is strong up in Hokkaido as well.
0: Yeah, it is. So, Noodles, my next question here actually relates to when you were selected by the Minnesota Wild in the 2000 expansion draft. Now, I know you've mentioned in previous interviews that you hired a sports psychologist to make sure you are in the right frame of mind, going from the best team in hockey with the St. Louis Blues to an expansion team in Minnesota. Your role during your NHL career as a backup goalie can be a thankless job, but from what I was seeing in old interviews, it seemed like you had a pretty upbeat attitude and you, it never seemed like being a backup goalie really ever got you down. So i got to ask, how did you go about approaching your role as a backup during your career?
1: I think one of the things that I identified probably in my mid-20s, 26, 27, um, is I had opportunities to be starters in, in, in the island, even in St. Louis early on. And I failed. I, you know, I, I came up short being a starter. There were times where I could give you 10 games in a row, but the 11th didn't look so good. And there was some erosion in, in my game. Uh, I don't know if that was mental toughness. I don't know if it was physical toughness. There was a lot of different things. Uh, you know, I think there were nights where I thought I had the talent to do it and other nights where I knew I didn't. So you, you get there quick enough. And, and I always say this, and I even sit, say this in today's world, The quicker that you can identify what you are at the National Hockey League level uh, and embrace it, but try and be the best at it, uh, I think the more success you can have. A lot of times uh, people forget, we're always, uh, when you make the NHL, a lot of times you're the best player from your city, the best player in your province or whatever. So you're used to kind of being the star as you come up. And then you get to the NHL and, and there's 700 stars. From all over the world and then the pecking order starts the, the separation of of talent and and work ethic and opportunity so you know for me I identified that hey I you know I'm an NHL goaltender and I think I can give some good minutes but can I be a 50 or 60 or 70 game starter I hadn't proven it so why not try and be one of the best 20 game starters 25 game starters whatever's needed and that was one of the things I took pride in is that I treated every game like it was my last. So it was It was one of those things where whether if I didn't play for for one month, six weeks, or if I played two games in one week, I, I treated the game the same. And, and once the puck dropped, there was no excuses. So uh, I, I identified that and and really worked hard at it. I, yeah, did I enjoy myself? I'll, 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 I'll go back to your... sports psychologist question um grant fear worked with a guy named max offenberger and max works with a lot of the the guys in the national hockey league on on certain levels just the the mental approach so i met maxie while i was playing in st louis because he was working with grant and we developed a relationship and once i knew i was going in expansion i knew it was going to be a tough situation it wasn't about making uh good money because uh you know, Minnesota was in on my extension with the Blues technically uh, behind the scenes and and I knew I was going to make some money with them but it was more hey I'm going from a first place team to potentially a last place team how am I going to handle that um, between the years so I hired Maxie and you know, Maxie would fly in we would talk a lot and it was just trying to have uh, some perspective on life and perspective on your game so uh, he helped me a lot through those uh, couple years. You can argue they were rougher patches as far as statistically, but you know they helped me grow as a player. And you know when I ended up getting traded to Calgary, I you know I lasted a, you know another four or five years because I I didn't hit the skids in, in uh, those statistical rough patches.
0: Now I know speaking about Ron Hextel and Grant Fear, and I'm sure that they were big mentors on you yeah. very early in your hockey career. Um, what kind of stuff to where they were telling you, or what kind of advice would you give that you applied to younger players later on your career, like a Marion Gabrick or a Roberto Luongo when you played with them?
1: Well, Gabby was a eighteen year old. I mean, we knew he was a superstar the the minute he lays uh, laid eyes on his game. You know, he was he had that Pavel Bure explosive speed. He had the hands. He was just a kid. I mean, he was honest to God eighteen years old, and you know, coming over from Slovakia. And they brought a guy named Lubomir Sekarash over, I think, who was about a 32-year-old kind of Slovak all-star as a mentor. That way there wasn't a a huge gap with the language. Uh, I thought Doug Rysbrow and and his his, uh, management group did a good job making sure that Gabby was taken care of. But, you know, watching him, you know, he didn't know how to be a pro right away. There were times where, you know, you kind of had to hold his hand a little bit. you know he was so naturally talented it's like hey you know what you got to get in the gym you got to get you know do these things and it wasn't me it was more guys like Wes walls and brad bombardier and Darby hendrickson you know the leaders in the room i like to consider myself as one of those leaders but it was more you know gabby and i uh, you know we're still good friends i was texting with him yesterday actually um so we developed a friendship even though our age difference was uh, so big it was it was more uh, I think he knew that I was a veteran guy he could come to if he needed any help. And, and, uh, you know, it's funny, it, it came full circle. I, you know, we spent a little time with Gabby last year when he got traded to the senators and, you know, it was, uh, the body is just, you know, sometimes you, uh, he's a Ferrari, but unfortunately he's a Ferrari with 400,000 kilometers on it right now because he's, you know, the body's just, uh, had a, had a tough go, but, uh, you know, you you learn from people. Grant and, and, and Ron Hextall were great for my work ethic, great for my psyche, uh, great for just uh, adding things into my repertoire as a professional. But they also, the way they carried themselves, you wanted to emulate that. So that's where I think people get lost in the, uh, in the shuffle, and I believe in analytics. But I know it bothers people that follow analytics religiously. religiously, when you hear that word intangibles and some of the things you can't quantify with a number um, there are, and and it it still is to this day. And I, you know, I would argue that when you look at the senators, guys like Ron Hainsey, you know, brought in Hainsey, you know, he's not brought in to play 30 minutes a night to get him to the playoffs. What he is, is he's going to be a stabilizing force and going to show a guy like Thomas Shabbat, how to, to continue to grow his game. And some of the young guys around the room and, and to me, that's what Pierre Dorian identified. So you, you pass it on when you're a veteran guy to a young guy, because guaranteed when Ron Hainsey and myself and you know, Ron Heckstone and Grant Fear were young guys, they looked, up, they looked up to somebody who was 30-something in the dressing room to show them the way.
0: So i of your time in the NHL and working as an analyst for TSN. Uh, most people nowadays would know you as one-third of the radio show Overdrive with Brian Hayes and Jeff O'Neill. And of course, talking about Overdrive, I got to ask about O-Dog. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I have a very limited knowledge of Overdrive, his radio show, but my older brother's a huge fan. And it's actually funny, when I told him that I was going to be interviewing you, his reaction was more of a, excuse my language, he was like, no fucking way are you interviewing Noodles. And I was like, I know, even I can't believe I'm interviewing him, but you know, it's great. So, and I actually wanted to ask about your relationship with O-Dog, given that you guys are both former NHLers who played in the league at the same time, despite... Uh, you were never teammates, and I don't believe you ever played in the same conference during your careers. Did you have much of a relationship with Jeff during your career, or did your relationship more or less develop with Overdrive?
1: It, it developed with Overdrive and when O joined TSN. Uh, did I know him? Absolutely. Had we crossed paths socially? Yes, because the one thing that... Um, the league is so small, and especially if you're in your wheelhouse, so O and I played against each other, but... I always call it the six degrees of separation. There's there's not somebody in the league that you don't know that didn't play with that player. Like, you could name any guy in the league in my era, and I could tell you a story about them because I could say, oh, that guy played with him in Philadelphia and saw him out one night and we had a beer or whatever. Like, there's, there's always some sort of storyline. So when it came to O, absolutely, I – uh, I knew what he, he was as a player, very talented, great shot, you know, down the walls, uh, skate. If I did a scouting report on him, he's, he shot very well in, in stride. So for a goaltender, it was tough to, to cast an angle on him because he was, he had good speed and, and was in motion and he could really bring it. So uh, that was, you know, oh, the, the player, oh, the person. Obviously I knew uh, several people that played with him and knew his demeanor and knew what he was all about. So uh, we had crossed paths and even chatted before he joined the media. Uh, he was helping out uh, an agency and just kind of hanging out. And I ran into him uh, at, at a Leaf game and we were chatting and BSing and stuff. So uh, he's a close friend. He's a, he's a great guy uh, sometimes can be misunderstood, but you know, what you see is what you get with O. There's not a lot of phoniness to him. He's a he's a pretty straight shooter. He lets you know where you stand, and, you know, I respect that. And, you know, he can rub people the wrong way sometimes, but uh, he, he's got a heart of gold, and, and he's certainly well-respected uh, in, in our circle.
0: Because, mm-hmm. like I said, with even my very limited knowledge of overdrive, and the couple of times that I've actually seated on TSN 2, That's always the perception I've always got of Jeff, is that he's a straight shooter. But I always got a sense that it always seems like somebody had to drag him into the studio. He just kind of seems like, do we really need to talk about this? Really?
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's, you know, it depends on the the mood of the day. But, you know, he's a guy that that certainly keeps things lively in there. Um, We've got good chemistry. And like I say, we're we're good friends. Uh, It's weird. We treat it... (laughs) I mean, our show is our show, but we we literally are three friends kind of sitting around talking current events and hockey and whatever else is going on. We don't see each other outside of the rink or I'm sorry outside of the studio very much just because of our lives being busy, but we we text and talk almost every day that way, and you know our three hours on air is kind of like a three hour catch up of of what's going on. so, You know it's there's not a lot of i wouldn't say that that there's not prep because we do prep and brian hayes i think is the best in the business as a host and he he keeps it on the rails uh we've got a producer we call the grappler keith bauer and keith is kind of newer this year but he's you know he's a guy who understands us and settles in with us so he he outlines the show brian sets it up and then me and O kind of come in and and put our stamp on it too so it's Everyone has different contributions. But yeah, it's a fun show. Um, we don't take ourselves too seriously, but there are serious topics that we have to get to. And, you know, sometimes uh, we do get at each other, but it's like three brothers. You know, you, you, you'll argue with a family member, but boy, you'll lay in traffic for them as well. So there's a, there's no love loss, but, uh, um, you know, we, we, we certainly uh, love each other like brothers. But once in a while, there's a little spat here and there because we are family.
0: Now, to close out the questions, Jamie, I feel the best way to do it is by bringing up the fact that you wrote a book, Best Seat in the House, which came out in 2013. It's actually fitting that we're closing out the interview this way, given that the previous interview guest that we had on the Third Line Plug Sensecast is actually the man that you co-wrote the book with, TSN 1200's Ian Mendez. How long did the book project take from start to finish, and what was it like working with Ian on the book?
1: Ian is a genius. Ian is awesome. Uh, the book would not have any legs or not be, I guess, considered a Canadian bestseller if it wasn't for Ian, um, because I I think I'm a decent writer, but that would have taken four years for me to put together, and I think Ian and I, I, I don't know exactly the timeline, but I want to say that it was maybe six months, start to finish, and it was because Ian is so creative, uh, so good, so dedicated to his work ethic. um I, I, I'll be honest. Like, I taped... What I would do is tell a story into my computer. I would videotape a story. I'll give it, a, a, you know, whatever it is. Chad Kruger and, and you know, the story of, of me, the helicopter or whatever it is. And, and I would tell the story into my computer. Then I would email that story to Ian. He would translate it, send it back to me. Then we'd kind of go through it and nip and tuck. But, um, again, he was... He's, he's such a, a great writer. He was able to translate, you know, a story of basically like you and I sitting around telling a story and having a chuckle about it. He was able to get that onto the pages. So it was a light book, if the fun book. Um, you know, it's not a it's not a heavy read, but I just I wanted people to to, to realize, you know, I, I did see some things throughout the career my career and had some fun and I was proud of it and you know, there were moments where I wasn't proud of, but you know, uh, sometimes the, well, not sometimes, I know the good outweighed the bad, and, uh, you know, I, I, and the book was for a good cause for my best friend who passed away, and, you know, the proceeds went to uh, his family, and I'm still very close with the family, so, uh, you know, proud of it, but Ian was uh, amazing. I don't know, what what did, did you, any story that stood out for
0: you, or... Uh, I, funny enough, actually, in preparation for this interview, I went to every bookstore from Nanaimo to Victoria on here in Vancouver Island. I could not find it. I could not find the book. I ended up, this morning, I ended up buying it on Amazon, because I'm like, okay, you know what? (laughs) I tried so hard to find this book, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to buy it, I'm going to read it, and I might, you know, tweet at Jamie and be like, I read it, it's awesome. Yeah, well, you know what, there's
1: some funny stories in there, and Honestly, like I say, I don't take myself too seriously about certain things, and, you know, I, I tried to share, you know, some of the, I, I call myself the forced Gump of hockey. I was kind of always around in the background when, like, big stuff was happening, and it was kind of neat. Uh, I wasn't front and center of a lot of it, but it was it was neat to, you know, play with Luongo and Grant Fear and Ron Hextall, and Jerome is one of my best friends, and Chris Pronger, and you know, those guys were in my wedding party, and, you know, so you get to talk about things along the way that you saw, um, you know, I've been asked to do a sequel to it, but, uh, you know, it's just my timing is, is, I'm a pretty busy guy, but it, uh, you know, at some point I'd like to sit down, I, I, I wrote a list of stories that I would tell, but, uh, you know, again, it's uh, it's fun. I love talking hockey and, and having fun, and, and I think that's what people who enjoy the game, they, they savor that as well.
0: For sure. So Noodles, Tim and I can't thank you enough for coming on the program, and thank you for fitting us into your schedule today. I know you've no been problem, very no busy.
1: You any, any other sense questions? What do we got? I got a few more minutes. You want to hammer power through and some off-the-cuff stuff, or what? Are we, Funny
0: uh, enough that you mention it, yeah. usually for yeah. this sort of um, interview, we do a segment called Rapid Fire, and given we got a few minutes... Would sure. you want to do a quick rapid fire segment?
1: Sure, if you got some questions, let's do them.
0: Okay, so just for everybody to know, uh, rapid fire first started on the Jay and Dan podcast. Actually, uh, noodles, you were on the uh, two if I'm not mistaken, correct?
1: I think so. I, I mean, I've been I've been on Jay and Dan so many times to TV, and I don't know. I I think I've done their their podcast a few times for sure, but I I know I, I do their their TV show quite a bit. So uh, Jay and Dan are close friends. They're they're, they're unreal. They're geniuses. I love it.
0: It's funny, I actually went to see them in their live show in Victoria the other night and they were hilarious. They were so good. They're
1: they're funny guys. They're very funny guys and they they do a very good
0: job. Absolutely. So like I said, Rapid Fire first started on the Jane Dan podcast when they were with Fox. Now since they've come back to T S N they have abandoned the Rapid Fire segment, so I've decided to take it and make it my own. So, Jamie, we gotta start off the Rapid Fire by asking, What is the best drinking establishment in Toronto?
1: Oh, in Toronto, really? Um, you know, for me, it's the Orbit Room. Now, it's a gritty little place, live band. I'll go there on, on a Monday night, and there's a guy named Jordan John who plays there, so I like live bands. So, you know, if you're expecting club or anything like that, it's not. Uh, there's two places for me, the Orbit Room on college, and then I always end up at the underground, and the underground is is gritty. Uh, you know, if you ever seen the movie Coyote Ugly it's, uh, oh, wow. the underground's a lot like that. Uh, and it kind of goes off every night, but it, it starts a bit later, about 1130, 12 o'clock. So those would be the two places. I, I, I don't know if people would love them, but, uh, I, have been there several times.
0: Okay. What is one thing you would recommend to see or do in Toronto that isn't a tourist trap?
1: Hmm. Interesting. Uh, that isn't a tourist. Well, with the steam whistle i guess like steam whistle brewery i don't know if that's a tourist thing or not but i i like going there and just having a beer it's fresh right like that's that's something i, I maybe there is a tour so i don't know if that's uh, an answer to the question but the other thing i would say is, is try and catch one of these unique theaters I'm a, I'm a big you know you go to tiff and stuff like that i love movies so you go to like an old school theater um I, I don't mind you know, there's there's one on college as well i think it's called the tivoli like those that's that's what i would recommend doing uh, other than the mainstream you know the cm tower and whatever else is down there
0: okay uh what was your favorite nhl arena to play in and also what was the hardest arena to play in
1: uh favorite nhl uh, probably the msg just the history and you walk in and and you know you're seeing pictures of bob dylan and muhammad ali like they've all performed there and uh, so MSG has, has so much atmosphere, and it's very cool. And I, for the most part, had some pretty good games there. The worst for me was Detroit. I don't know if I can remember having one good game against the Red Wings. <laughs> like, for some reason, it just, in that building, I, I would get chewed up, whether I started or came in. Quick story, I remember Kiprasov had a rough night there one night, and we were, he got pulled it was like 4-1 or something, and I got thrown in. And I ended up allowing a couple more. And then we came storming back, so I got the loss. And I remember getting to the back of the plane after the game, and Kipper was laughing at me, saying, you took the L for me uh, as we were having a beer. So um, I I think Detroit is is certainly the the rink I struggled with uh, uh, in the most, for sure. Okay. Favorite moment covering the Sens? There's a lot. You know, I, I enjoy... You know the organization has been so good to me. Um, honestly, like PR guys treat me very well. Uh, the team is very accessible. So, you know, there's you know traveling with the team. I don't I don't go on the charters. I don't want to do anything. I try and keep my distance. But I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, running into a few of the guys. Like I'm a big Nashville fan. So, you know, you go to Nashville the day before and go and sit and have a bucket of beer and the uh, legends on the corner or something like that. And you know, I ran into a few of the guys last year and just chatting them up, and you know, they weren't out losing or anything. They just wanted to listen to some live music. You know, for me, my favorite part about it is just, you know, they they know I'm a former player. They know I show them respect. Uh, for them to to give me a little respect, it kind of made me. It brought me into the room a little bit. Uh, so that was that was kind of one of them. Obviously, when Dion got traded there, I'm very close with Dion, so I got a chance to. You know visit with him and Eric Carlson a few times and stuff like that and, you know professionally you know seeing some firsts you know kids called up and first goal and first first win that type of stuff uh, honestly there's so many but I, I really enjoy covering the Sens they, they treat me very well and you know I hope I do I them some justice on air as well.
0: Jamie given that you always had the KISS inspired goalie masks where would you rank Roman Turek's Iron maiden bird? goalie mask? <laughs> well,
1: Roman, honestly, Roman was a heavy metal guy. And it was funny because, you know, he his son is named Eddie after the mascot of Iron Maiden. So that's how dedicated of a fan he is. But, yeah, I, I loved Roman's mask because he was kind of ahead of the curve. Now everyone has the personalized things, but, you know, Roman... Uh, from what I can remember, always had that mascot on there and loved Iron Maiden and he loved heavy metal music. Roman was more of one of the most underrated goaltenders I ever played with. Man, was he a good goalie and he was an unreal guy. He just was a fun-loving person and he was so big. Six-foot-five lefty goalie that covered so much of the net. Honest to God, I never... uh, I I don't think people realize how good of a goalie he was. Um, I lost touch with him and I recently... Uh, reached out to him about two months ago, so we reconnected, and he's a, he's a, he's a great guy, and you know it's it's nice to to talk to somebody I haven't talked to in a long
0: time. So, given that you're a big movie guy, I gotta ask two movie related questions. First of all, what is the best movie you've seen in 2019? And my brother actually want to know what is the best slash worst experience you've had in a movie theater.
1: Uh, the worst experience I've had in a movie theater was. I was alone in the theater watching, I don't remember, I go to afternoon movies, and I was sitting there by myself, I always sit off to the side, and a guy came in, and I don't know, you know, what type of shape he was in, but he came and sat next to me, which was really awkward, and I got up and moved, and he just was like staring at me, and I think it was like a creepy movie too, and I was like, what's wrong with this guy, like I, I, I was a little bit like off kilter about it that was one and then there was another one when uh Pulp, the opening of Pulp Fiction I was in New York and it was the opening night and people were hooting and hollering and I got into an argument with the lady that was behind me because she wouldn't shut up and I just said to her I said you know we're trying to watch the movie can you you know and she was not happy and her and her boyfriend wanted to have a a conversation outside and, and, and it, it kind of, you know, it was diffused inside, but I was like, I just want to watch a movie. Like, you know, so that was the worst, best movie I've seen. man. I, you know, that's tough. Cause I, I, I see everything. Um, put me on the spot on that name. Can you name a couple movies that are, are good? And I can tell you if they are they are uh, worth your time or not. What did I see the other day? Oh, I saw Ramble. That was, that was not good. Like, yeah. i don't know well, i'm a i'm a big rambo rocky all that fan but uh it was almost like they just threw that story together and made a 90 minute movie it wasn't uh wasn't as good as i hoped it to be but uh i'm weird that way you know even that once upon a time in hollywood that tarantino movie everyone was building it up and i thought it was just okay you know it was pretty pretty long and kind of uh I, I don't know. It, it was it was all right, but honestly, I see everything, so I I, uh, I don't know if I can give you a definitive answer on that one.
0: Okay, so given your your career as an NHL goalie, I've got to ask: Have you been ever been hit with a puck between the benches?
1: Yes, between the benches doing color. Yes, I uh, I got hit over the head with a stick the other uh, last season with Um It actually concussed me. I was like. I was struggling for a couple of days, headaches, and I had to go see the doctors and stuff. And, you know, Boro knew right away. He went to step up in the neutral zone, and, and uh, his stick his hit me over the head, and he circled back at the uh, TV timeout. He's like, he goes, are you okay? He goes, I felt that was stick on skull. And I was like, yeah, it was. And Boro's a great guy. And he texts me a day later just to check in on me. To, that's the type of person he is. And have I been hit by a puck? Yes, I got hit in the shoulder two years ago. I think it was in New York. We were on the road, and it was a, it was a, I, I could sneeze it happening, but it hit a stick and then hit me. So, uh, knock on wood. Um, there's been a lot of close calls, but you know you see guys get uh, get thumped pretty good. But uh, hopefully that that won't be me.
0: Okay, so to close out rapid fire, and we always do this with every guest we've had. So, given the years that you've covered the Ottawa Senators and you've traveled to Ottawa for games, there's a burger place in Ottawa called Burgers and Fries Forever, and we always tend to ask, interview guests, because a lot of people we've interviewed live in Ottawa or they're from the Ottawa area, and i got to ask Jamie, given the years that you've gone to Ottawa, have you ever gone to Burgers and Fries Forever, and would you say it's one of the best burgers in Ottawa, or do you feel it's overrated? Uh,
1: I haven't gone yet, I'm sad, Uh, I have to tell you, i I stay at the Westin downtown and just go to the rink and come back. Um, I went there for a concert a couple weeks ago there and ended up late night and we just had pizza. So now that you got me thinking, I'm gonna try it and uh, next time I chat with you guys, I'll give you a rating. So it's almost like those things on the canal, those uh, those um,
0: like donuts or whatever those things are called. Uh, oh, uh, beaver tails. Yeah. I've
1: never tried those before and I ended up trying one. It was fantastic. So I'm a little behind in my Ottawa culture, but I'll catch up and uh, next time around, I'll let you guys know I'm going to, I'm going to try that restaurant out.
0: Absolutely. Cause yeah, when, next time we get you on the show, we'll definitely have to bring it up. Sounds good. So noodles, again, we cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast and making some time to join us. Uh, before we let you go, we got to ask, first of all, how can people find you on social media, and how can people also find the radio show Overdrive?
1: Uh, Overdrive is we stream online at uh, 1050 Radio in Toronto. We're on TSN, I think, 2 and 4 uh, nationally and, and regionally on TV. Um, I think we, we podcast on iTunes and Spotify and all of that, so uh, our numbers are, are pretty good on that. So that's Overdrive, and as For Spark as Social Media, I'm just at Jamie McClennan 29 so that's my uh, that's my Twitter handle. So those are pretty much the the ways to get a hold of me or uh, um, to see me on Overdrive.
0: Awesome. So Tim, do you have anything you want to say before we finally close out the interview with Noodles?
1: Nothing more than this has just been a really fun 45 minutes. I have to admit. <laughs> All right. Well, good. I, I'm. I'm thankful you guys had me, and I uh, appreciate it, and we'll, uh, we'll talk down the road.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Jamie.
1: All right, guys. Take care. We'll talk soon.
0: Man, that was a really great interview, Tim.
1: He sounds like a guy who'd go on for hours, and, it's, and it would be
0: amazing every second of it. Oh, I know. The fact that he gave us as much information as, as he did is absolutely fantastic, man. He, we could have got him for at least three hours telling stories, and... Um, all that good stuff, but you know what? We'll definitely have to try and get him back on the show sometime. Yeah, happy things open. So, yeah, I'm just speechless. Honestly, that was awesome. Yeah, I best. Th- I feel that the best way we should go about this, Tim, is to segue into the close. Yep. First of all, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I hope you've enjoyed it because, believe me, Tim and I love recording it for you. You can find us on iTunes. Please listen, rate, and subscribe. We're on SoundCloud, SoundCloud.com/slash Third Line Plug Sensecast. And because our pod, Dave made the mention, we're on Google Play Music. You can find us on Twitter at Third Line Plug, is our Twitter handle. Tim is at M91 Honey Badger, and I'm at Great White Gipster, G R 8, W I T E Gipster. If you want to choose an email to talk about today's interview with Jamie shoot choose an email Third Line Guys at gmail.com. Until next time, guys, I am your host, Taylor Gibson. And this has been Tim Go, Sense Guys.
1: My time it is up. They're going home.